guys. Thanks for tuning in today. I know it has been a while, but I am back in business. So definitely stay tuned because I'm going to be putting out more and more podcasts in the upcoming months. But today I really have an important topic because we're going to be talking about happiness in a sense and how we can cultivate that into our own lives. According to the latest Pew Research Center survey, a small third or only 34% of adults in this country say they're overall very happy. Another half say they are pretty happy and 15% consider themselves not too happy. These numbers may or may not come as a shock to you, but they have remained consistent for a long time. Then look at your own life and ask, are you happy at work? A poll taken from the conference board, a New York-based nonprofit research group, they found that only 47.7% of Americans say that they are happy at work, leaving the 52.3% of Americans dreading work each and every week. Are you one of those? <laughs> then this is the best podcast for you to tune in. But then this really leaves many questions as to why are some of us happier than others? What factors add to our happiness and how do we want to find ways of feeling fulfilled? This, of course, will vary from person to person, but today we'll be exploring key components that can really help you begin to change your life so that you personally can feel more fulfilled and find ways to create your own happiness. This then leads into me introducing my guest today. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private practice located in Fremont, California. She received her master's degree in counseling psychology from Santa Clara University and has pursued additional training from Brene Brown as a Daring Way facilitator candidate and training in Gottman therapy for couples work. Her practice includes therapy with children, adolescents, and adults in individual, family, and group type settings. She also works with couples. Some of the many topics presented in her work include helping clients manage anxiety and depression, providing techniques to cope with grief and trauma, helping others develop social and problem-solving skills, allowing people to explore sexual identity concerns, and overall building self-esteem for clients. She helps people improve relationships and connect with others more authentically. I'm excited to introduce Holly LaBarbera to the show today. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Let's Do It with Melissa Risso, licensed marriage and family therapist discussing mental health, relationships, and all the good stuff between the sheets. <laughs> Why, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Really, where do you want to get started? There's a lot to talk about around this work, specifically the work around Brene Brown, The Daring Way. Mm -hmm. For listeners out there, what is it even about? So Brene Brown is a researcher who's written a number of books, I think four books, and does trainings for therapists and life coaches and people like that. And her research is based on shame and shame resilience, vulnerability, and wholehearted living. So wholehearted living is kind of this idea of approaching life from a sense of worthiness and cultivating courage and compassion and connection, kind of this idea of that you wake up in the morning and thinking that kind of no matter what I get done today or no matter what doesn't get done, that I'm okay. And then when you go to bed at night, even if you didn't kind of achieve what you wanted that day, that you're like, okay, I'm fine 
there's nothing wrong with me because I didn't do enough or achieve enough or something like I that. I know this is something I definitely need because the other day I woke up and I just was like, oh, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do anything today. Why? Mm-hmm. And just kind of already starting myself off to this horrible mindset for the day, but learning that it's so important to carry some positivity mm-hmm. throughout the day. But how do you really do that is the big question. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that comes from this idea of shame resilience. We live in a culture that's based on scarcity, like that there's not enough or we're not enough or we're never doing enough. And so I think you wake up in the morning thinking, okay, if I don't get enough done, then there's something wrong with me. And kind of this idea that you're worthy of love and belonging regardless of what you do or what happens during the day. I mean, what I do is try and work with people to instill that, change that basic sense, because most people don't experience a lot of shame around not being good enough. Especially in this area, because we live in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of pressure to succeed, to be the best of the best. I mean, we live near Silicon Valley, and some of the most brilliant people I've ever met are in this valley, Mm -hmm. and there's so much competition. Mm -hmm. I just see it nonstop. Where is the end in all of this? I know you can't answer that. But. No, I can't answer that. But it comes into play for a lot of, I mean, I work with a lot of teens. I have a senior in high school right now, and a lot of his friends just stress out so much about college. And, you know, there's only so many spots. And if you don't go to Berkeley, then your life is over and nobody gets to go to Berkeley anymore. So it's this exhausting yourself by striving and then this shame when you don't achieve that. So it's a real problem, and it's a problem for high-achieving adults and then kind of passed on to kids. And I think people of all ages are definitely struggling with this. Brene Brown, this is from her work. Do you know what got her into this? Well, she tells this story that she, when she was getting her master's in social work or her doctorate, she was kind of nervous about showing up and being vulnerable with people, which is required, I think, when you're a good therapist to kind of be vulnerable with your clients. So somebody kind of introduced her to research, which she felt like, oh, cool, then I don't have to be so vulnerable. I'll just be out there studying everyone else. But she started into shame research, which is kind of an ironic twist. I think she was kind of maybe setting herself up to go here, but started finding out a lot about shame and vulnerability. And then she talks about her spiritual awakening slash breakdown. breakdown. I, I watched the TED Talk. So for mm-hmm. those of you listening, definitely Take a look at the TED website. She has two wonderful talks about Mm -hmm. vulnerability and shame piece. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the vulnerability talk is my favorite. Once she started doing this research and found that these people who had a lot of shame resilience had these certain qualities, and we can talk about those, but she realized she was did not cultivate a lot of these qualities and, or not qualities, it's more practices, characteristics, and kind of realized that she was stuck in a lot of shame and needed some work on that. So did her own personal work and then publicizing this for the benefit of others as well. Now, for some cultures, our culture is one, shame is at the root of a lot of what people do. Mm-hmm. How is it that anyone is willing or likely to change that if that is such a basic foundation for some people? What Brene's research shows is that shame doesn't actually change behaviors. Mm. If you're feeling like you're never enough or you're not enough or you're unworthy, the kind of underlying premise to that is that there's nothing you can do to change. So if you're unworthy, no matter what you do, you're going to be unworthy. One of the paradoxes is people strive for perfection, thinking that if I'm perfect, then I won't feel like this anymore. 
But, of course, you're never going to actually be perfect. And even if you are for one single second, it's fleeting and it's gone. And... On to the next. <laughs> on to the next. And so it's just this constant reminding you that you're not worthy because you're not perfect. But it also just puts you that you don't have control over anything. Whereas if you're coming from this more wholehearted way of living, you feel more control of things. Like if you take guilt, for example, like the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is that I did something wrong. And then you can change that because it was a behavior. It was an action that you feel bad about and you can do it differently. Whereas when you're feeling shame... You're just a terrible person. You suck. And there's nothing you can do if you just suck. But how would one define shame? Because I know for a lot of people, it Mm -hmm. varies greatly. The way Brene defines it, that it's an intensely painful feeling of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. That idea of you can never be loved if something vulnerable is shown. Exactly. And creates this disconnection, which I think is also a huge problem in our society and specifically maybe in our Silicon Valley area. But the thing is, too, that people are built for love and belonging. And all of her research shows this and lots of other people's research. I mean, humans need connection. The basic necessity, in a sense, for a lot of people. Absolutely. And so it's a part of your survival. And so when you don't feel, I think that's why bullying is so powerful. Because when you feel like that is in jeopardy, that you're going to be ostracized from the group, it feels like a death sentence kind of, you know, at some unconscious level. When I hear you describe all this, the other day I went into a meeting, sat down after sitting in two hours worth of traffic, instantly had a talk, kind of, you know, introducing myself to some new members that were at the meeting. I was just embarrassed, basically, and I didn't like how I was introducing myself. And I remember sitting there for like the next 15 minutes just feeling so ashamed, like, gosh, what do these new members think about me? Why did I just say that? Oh, it just spiraled out of control where that shame piece was obviously at the very root of all of this. Mm -hmm. And I can tell a lot of people that I meet with in my office, even just friends and whatnot, this comes up quite often for a lot of people. It does. And there's men and women both experience shame. There's different triggers. And so this is one of the things, too, that when I'm working with people is identifying their particular shame triggers. And some are pretty calm. Kind of common. But um, what do you commonly hear? Well, so for women... Shame triggers tend to be around appearance and body image, motherhood or not, or troubles with that, you know, either being a mom or not being a mom, or that's a huge one for women. I was going to say, I'm bombarded all the time. I log on to Facebook and it seems like every other day someone's getting pregnant or, you know, Mm -hmm. and I always wonder for those that cannot get pregnant for fertility concerns, how is that for them and how much Mm -hmm. shame can Mm -hmm. come up? Even for me, I'm like, should I be having a baby now? Because everyone else is. Well, and you just got married. So like the (laughs) second you get. (laughs) Yeah, but it is true. The second you get married, everyone's like, so when are you having a baby? And those expectations again. Yeah. And then once you are a mom, I know for me, motherhood is definitely a shame trigger because it's, I want to be the best mom ever in the world. And Mm -hmm. this is the thing with shame is it's usually driven by this kind of ideal version of yourself, not like I want to be a good mom. I want to be absolutely the best mom. Like anyone ever in the world would say, oh, yeah, Holly, she's the best mom I ever met. So when you aren't that, which, of course, I'm not lots of times, Mm -hmm. that's a huge shame trigger. And when someone notices, that's even more of a shame trigger. I had once... This was a long time ago because my kids are older, but I it sticks in my head. My son was probably two, 
or something like that. And he always had trouble falling asleep. It was one of those nights he was just not going to sleep. And it was like, ah, I was going crazy. He was getting up. He was crying, whatever. And I just, I don't know. I couldn't so hold it together. So you weren't getting any sleep. <laughs> I wasn't. And, and my husband was home. And I ended up, I just left. Like, I got in the car and just said, I got to go. And obviously, I didn't leave him home alone. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a horrible mom moment, but it sticks in my head because I just felt so, just like such a failure that you can't get your kid to sleep. And the thing is, you don't talk about moments like that. So then the shame just builds because shame thrives on secrecy and quiet and not talking about it. And the more you don't talk about it, the more ashamed you feel. But the more shame you feel, the less you're going to talk about it. Because the worst thing is that you're going to say, and I felt like a terrible mom, and someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't such a good moment. And then you feel like crap. What were some other common topics for women and for men? Women are supposed to be perfect, do everything, and make it look easy. So you're uh. supposed to, yeah. <laughs> so there's no pressure there, you know, no chance at all. of failure. But that's kind of generally how women shame trigger. If you make it look too hard or fall short in kind of anything obvious, that's huge shame. And for men, it's a little more straightforward. For men, it's usually success, whether that's money particularly, which usually a lot of times it is. Or just status kind of thing. So it's basically success and strength. So not showing any weakness and making a lot of money. I often see a lot of men get concerned. How is their status when it comes to their careers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're not a manager by the time they're 20 years old, some people get really upset around that. Or if mm -hmm. they're not making a certain amount of money, what's that say about them and their success? So my husband just switched careers from very high status, high paying job to being a teacher. And so he's a teacher now. And it was a long time coming because it was kind of giving up on those two things, which are huge, giving up on money and giving up on status. Yeah, those are the hardest things, really. So I'm very proud of him that he did it. But yeah. it's hard. It's hard to do. Yes. Now that we've kind of talked about the shame piece, mm -hmm. what it is, how do we start working on that? You mentioned some characteristics. Yeah. So Renee identifies these 10 areas that people who live more wholeheartedly who have developed shame resilience are really good at. So my work with people is trying to cultivate these areas and make these areas stronger. So the first one, which I think is by far the most important, is authenticity. What does that mean? Yeah. So authenticity is kind of the opposite of caring what people think. So it's being true to yourself versus doing whatever everyone else does. And Brene has this kind of saying, she says, which is hustling for worthiness. Authenticity is, yeah, giving up what people think and acting in line with your own values. So this is a thing I do with lots of clients and I do it in my group, which is spend a good chunk of time identifying your values. Because I was just thinking, what if you don't know your own values? Because mm -hmm. there are several people that kind of do every single thing that's expected of them, that other people want from them, that they never really get the opportunity to explore what they want in life or what they enjoy in the first place. Exactly. Enjoyment and fun is another different area Oops, of this. Jump the gun. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you're not going to know what that is if you don't know yourself really well. Mm -hmm. You know, I sit with people too where I'm like, okay, what kind of things do you like doing? And they can't even answer that question. But it starts with the authenticity, which starts with knowing your values. And yeah, you don't know sometimes. So I have 
I have lists of values to kind of get people started, at least maybe figuring out what's not your values. Could you give me an example or two for the listeners? Sure. So, so for looking. me, myself, so I've gone through kind of this, a group of this with Brene being trained by it. And so this was the first thing, exercise that we did. So some of my values, I'll give you two. So family and hope are two of mine. I could use this metaphor of a lantern to help people. And so your values is the flame in the lantern. And that's what's going to light your way and show you where to go. And then we try to come up with these protecting factors, like what keeps that flame lit, what keeps it from going out. The other piece is how do you know when you've walked away from that? Like when you're in the dark, how do you know that? For the example, for me with family, one of the things I do to protect my value of family is no phones at dinner. So I have teenagers. We don't always get to sit down to dinner together. But when we're all at the table together, or any of us, when any portion of us is at the table together, there's no phones, there's no TV, hopefully conversation, not always. But at least, even if there's not, there's like, this is it. We're just sitting just here being... together. Yeah. I love playing games. So we play games. I have um, game nights in my house too. <laughs> yeah. So things like that, like that keeps my family strong. But I know sometimes when I walk away from that, I feel very irritable. Like if I'm not getting enough family time, if I'm working too much or whatever, I can feel it in myself. I get really just kind of bitchy, like just, you know, short fuse. And I tend to isolate myself. So when I'm not having that connection feeling, I will just kind of be off on my own. And instantly as I hear you say that, I'm thinking, what if family was one of my authentic characteristics that I need, but I have family overseas or it's not Mm -hmm. realistic for me to try to fulfill that or find that authenticity. Mm -hmm. Because I know that's a common one for a lot of people. I moved across country or I Mm -hmm. moved different countries itself Mm -hmm. and I can't cultivate that. Yes. Yes. And I guess I would say I think now with technology, it's so much easier. I know my probably best friend is my sister and she lives in Florida. And since we were, you know, since we've been adults, we've never lived in the same city, but we talk on the phone all the time. We comment on Facebook to each other. So there are ways. Definitely ways. Cultivating your values or keeping those in mind is not always easy. Like fighting with my teenagers to put their phones away. Although I don't really have to fight because they just know that's a non-negotiable. But it's definitely not always easy. But you can be creative and find ways to make it work. Identifying your values is the place to start okay. with that. So um, first, find your values, people. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is the next step then? You can have an anthem. I work with people to do that. Find a song that kind of goes along with your values to listen to. Develop a little mantra to remind yourself. So anyway, those are just to make it your ringtone. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So another way to kind of cultivate this shame resilience is self compassion, which is another area that people are super bad at, (laughs) including I'm not that great at it, but I'm working at it. I don't think many people are that I mean, at least. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because back to our society values, getting a lot done, being very productive, values perfection. If you're trying to be perfect, you can't really be nice to yourself because you're constantly failing. And so it's actually self-compassion is kind of the opposite of kind of giving up on perfectionism and letting that go, which is a huge vulnerable place. And that, I think, was one that hung up Brene Brown. And that was one that hung me up. Oh, I can. I'm (laughs) sitting here. I'm like, oh, God, let me take notes. (laughs) After I had my first son, my OBGYN was an awesome doctor. I loved her. I remember going for my six-week checkup. And I went in there and she's like, okay, so have you given up trying to do everything? And I kind of looked at her like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And she's like, okay, so no, you haven't yet. And 
that was 20 years ago and it sticks in my head that I'm more aware of trying to not worry about being perfect. I definitely get caught in it a lot, but just trying to be more aware. Because whenever I hear people, okay, yeah, I want to back off on some of the things in my life because I'm doing too much. Well, then what if I lose my job? What if Mm -hmm. I get a divorce? What if I do all these different things, all those what ifs? And I know in a different podcast, this kind of came up where those what ifs are really killers. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why cultivating these things is not easy. It brings up this huge sense of vulnerability because it's a risk. And that kind of goes into skipping away from self-compassion for a second, but vulnerability and some of the myths around that, which is number one, that vulnerability is weakness, which it totally is not. Vulnerability requires so much courage and this thing that you appreciate or like vulnerability in other people when you see it, like if you see somebody else making some, you know, you see someone propose to somebody, right? And you're like, wow, that was so awesome and brave of them. But you don't want to be the one to do that. I'm thinking I went to a conference once and at the end, this woman was singing in front of probably 2000 plus people just out of nowhere. And it was such a powerful moment. And I remember leaving thinking, First off, how the hell did she do that? <laughs> like, oh, wow, that woman is confident. But second, like, wow, that really took a lot of vulnerability because in her speech, she initially started off that she was deathly afraid to sing in front of others. And it just left this powerful moment, as I said. Mm-hmm. So that vulnerability is extremely important. It's needed. It is. And a lot of people will say like, oh, yeah, but well, they say this with shame and vulnerability. Like, yeah, I get it, but I don't really do that. Like, that doesn't really apply to me. And there's no way to opt out of vulnerability. There's no way to not do it unless you're going to not live live life, really, you know, because there's always uncertainty. There's always risk. There's always the chance of getting hurt. But the choice is to not engage. And so my advice would be to engage. And yes, there's risks involved in that. Um, It's kind of going out of your comfort zone a lot of the times too, which absolutely, you know, we work with clients where they start to slowly get out of their comfort zone and it makes them nervous. It brings up so many unwanted feelings. Mm -hmm. And we live in a society that almost kind of wants to numb our emotions and our feelings where I always tell people, if you know you can get through it, sit with those feelings, explore them. And I say if you can, because some people, they just are not in a place where they mentally would be able to. And I think, mm-hmm. I don't even want to go there, but, yeah, but just right. knowing that you're at a place where you can kind of explore with what comes up is important. Absolutely. And like you said, that's a huge part of our society is the instant numbing. The instant you feel sad, you either have some wine or play a video game or... Distract. Absolutely. <laughs> or people come to me, you know, like, somebody died and helped me feel better. And I'm like, okay, well, first you have to feel really bad. You can't just skip through that. There's things that happen in your life that make you sad or that make you angry and kind of going through that without fear that you're going to get stuck there, which is the big thing is people feel like if I feel like this, I'm never going to not feel like this. It's always interesting when I work with drug addicts or previous drug addicts or people in recovery where They'll come in and say, this is the first time I felt this emotion. I can't mm-hmm. believe that I'm feeling fear. Like They just were so numb to things that it's almost like a baby being born experiencing mm-hmm. new things. That's kind of how that experience is once you get out of your comfort zone. It's going to be uncomfortable at first, mm-hmm. but to get through to the other side, you need to experience it in the first place. 
And the important thing to know is that you can't numb just one end of the spectrum. So if you're numbing fear and sadness and anger, you're also numbing joy and excitement and exhilaration. You don't get to feel the good stuff either. And so if you keep yourself in this really small part of emotion, which is kind of indifferent, Yes, you know, with like maybe a little happy, maybe a little disappointed now and then, but that's as much as you experience, you're missing out on these huge other parts. So yes, an addict might feel like, oh, I've never felt this fear before, but that still feels bad kind of, right? But at the same time, they also may experience some really exciting, joyful moment, which they also didn't experience before. So what else can people be doing to create more happiness then? And this authenticity, we said the Mm self-compassion. So the self-compassion, I just want to go back to because one thing I like to do with people is have a little conversation in your head and think about whatever you're going through that you're mad at yourself about messing up. What would you say if your friend was telling you the same thing? What would you say to your friend? I made muffins the other day and one of them got burned. (laughs) This is ridiculous. No, but that is so true. And that's back to this whole women are supposed to be perfect kind of thing, right? And my husband came home and I was just, I I could feel it. I felt so angry with myself. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I want to make him a great muffin. (laughs) This sounds so ridiculous. But that's in that moment, I was so upset with myself because I didn't want to be judged that I'd be a crappy cook, that I'd be a bad wife, that Mm -hmm. I'd be all these different things. But when you're saying, you didn't want to be judged, what you're really saying is in your head, you were saying to yourself, oh, you're such a crappy wife. You're such a bad cook. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, stupid idiot. Why did I yes. let the muffins burn? And like, then I those... paused <laughs> right. and asked if a friend said these things, would I be saying the same back to her? Like, yeah, you are a shitty cook. Or... Right. Exactly. No. <laughs> no. You would say, you know, like if you called me and said, I just burned these muffins and I'm feeling, I would say, oh, well, at least you were trying and you'll do better next time. And everybody has those moments and it's okay. We're just um, so hard on ourselves. So hard on ourselves. And so you constantly have this voice in your head. And so that's a huge part of self-compassion, just that, like learning to be more kind. That voice in your head, just turning it around to be more kind is huge. And then just some mindfulness stuff too in general, which I love. So another though, great thing to cultivate is gratitude and joy. Because again, we live in this scarcity culture where there's never enough and not enough. And if you start getting into a practice of appreciating even the little things, it can be really, really huge. And I find this with clients a lot. This comes out of my mouth all the time. Like either keep a gratitude journal or just to notice those things and kind of say it in your head, like take a minute. I find it so easy to be grateful when I'm in a good mood, things are going well in life. And then when the shit hits the fan or mm-hmm. it seems like it, what's that expression when it rains, it pours. Absolutely. It's so hard for me to get to a place to just be grateful. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for a lot of things. But when you're at that kind of dark place or just having a bad day, you have mm-hmm. a flat tire, you got fired from a job, you name it. Mm-hmm. How do you cultivate that? Well, and that's kind of the secular thing with all of this is when you feel when the shame starts coming on. You're feeling it because you feel not worthy and you feel like you don't deserve anything good. And so you don't do any of the good things for yourself because you don't feel like you're worth it. You neglect everything. Exactly. So I love doing yoga, but when I'm stressed, I don't do it. It would be the absolute best thing to do when I'm stressed. And you just kind of discount yourself. Like you stop taking care of yourself because you're... It's almost a form of self-punishment. 
Mm-hmm. Like I'm feeling shamed. I'm feeling that I'm not worthy or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of neglect or ignore those things that do create happiness in your life. Exactly. And then people will say, well, I went home and had wine and watched TV. Like, yeah, but that didn't actually make you feel better. Or for most people, it usually doesn't. Don't want to speak for everyone. But generally, maybe it distracts you, but it doesn't necessarily make you feel better. So I'm just thinking, yeah, I love a glass of wine, but three weeks later, I'm not going to be like that wine that I had three weeks ago was amazing. It changed my life. I was so happy because right. <laughs> it's not going to do that. Like all of these, they can be forms of self-compassion and self-care too, or they can turn into numbing, right? So you can, like if you love chocolate and you have a piece of chocolate now and then, like that's awesome. And in, that's taking care of yourself because you're pampering yourself. But if every night you go home and eat a bunch of chocolate to numb out, that's different. It's for food. It's for drinking. It's for TV, video games, anything, basically. So it's like Cookie Monster. No more cookies for you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so anything um, else that for the characteristics, because you named mm-hmm. a lot. I want to make sure that listeners really understand. Yeah. So, again, there's 10, so there's a lot. But the other one that I think is... I don't want to stop without saying is this is kind of combining a few of them, but it's kind of the fun ones. So it's play, rest, laughter, song, dance, and that's a bunch of different ones. But kind of this idea that that is absolutely the first thing to go is anything having fun. And this goes back to what I was saying about um, working with people to make a list of things you like. And that can be really powerful for people because they haven't thought about that. And I'll have someone come in and like, I actually read a book or started a book this week. And it feels so good because they haven't allowed themselves to do that. But sitting down and finding the things that you enjoy, it doesn't need to be today or know all the answers to that. Because, again, some people don't know this. So taking the time to really explore what it is that makes you happy is crucial. Yes. And, again, our culture is exhaustion and productivity are status symbols, right? So, I mean, I don't know how many times I hear people, oh, my gosh, I only got two hours of sleep. I'm so tired. And you are complaining, but you're also kind of bragging a little. Yes. You know, like, I got so much done because I never sleep. Okay. Um, I could never do that. I'd be the crankiest person. Me too. I'm glad that you can work on two hours of sleep. (laughs) Yeah, not going to happen over here. But why? Why is that a good thing? I mean, it's not sustainable for most people. It's just a crazy thing in our culture that that's something we admire. Again, trying to be the best of the best or outdo one another, Mm -hmm. which is so unfortunate because where is the piece of helping one another out? Yes. And having fun together. Right. And, And all of these, this is the other part I haven't really said too much about, but all of this is really about connecting with other people. Finding your authentic self then you're truly connecting with other people. Whereas when you're pretending to be somebody else, even when people like you, you still feel like you're not worthy of love and belonging because that you're saying in your head, but if they really knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. So you can portray this perfect thing, but it's still leaving you feeling disconnected from people because they don't know the real you. And what if they really like the real you? And you wouldn't know unless you actually show that side of yourself. Exactly. So I have... I have in-laws. For years, I really stressed out when they would come visit trying to, because, you know, they value a really clean house and kind of the housewifiness that is not me. That I'm Pressure's on. <laughs> you know, I'm okay with it now. But, but I used to really try to impress them with that kind of thing. And they were never impressed because they're way better at it than I am ever going to be. But I also suppressed a lot of the parts of myself that I figured they probably wouldn't value. And then I just came to realize 
I was miserable the whole time they were visiting. And why not just be myself? Sorry to the in-laws if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but I think then at least I'm giving it a chance, right? Like I'm showing my real self and we're not best friends and that's okay. At least I'm... But that's who you are. Who are you? What do you feel comfortable with? What's going to make you happy? Exactly. Bottom line. And you show different... You know, you're not going to be all vulnerable with every person you meet. You know, you judge how much you trust people, how much they mean to you, how important they are in your life to decide what you're going to share with everyone, you know, but I I know the certain person I would call if I'm upset. And those are my people. All of these areas need to come back in your head to the point is connection. So connection is crucial. Connection is crucial. crucial. It's important. Yeah, it's important. And that's kind of the goal of all of these things is overcoming shame so that you can connect with other people in an authentic way and feel worthy of love and belonging, you know, like you are. And that's the whole point is to love and to belong. So if I'm a listener and I want to learn more about Brene Brown's work and the daring way and your Mm -hmm. work, of course, how would I go about getting the information? com is my website. And I have an office in Fremont, and I see people and work with people. I run groups. I'm in the middle of a group talking about all of this right now, and I'll have another group starting right after the first of the year. Brene Brown's work, you can just Google Brene Brown, and there's tons of stuff out there. She has great books, Daring Greatly. And again, take a look at her TED Talks, too. Yeah, the TED Talk is a great place to start, because if you like that, then you can go on from there. The Gifts of Imperfection is another book she wrote that is one of my favorites. So I'm going to have to take a look at it. Yeah. So anything to leave listeners with the takeaway that they should keep in mind? She has this saying, which is show up, be seen, live brave. And that I just keep in mind a lot to show up yourself, your authentic self and be seen as who you are. And it requires being brave because there's risks involved, but the payout is huge. So then I have to say, thanks for showing up today. Thank you. <laughs> I have seen you. Yes, this is <laughs> out of my comfort zone. Brave, so. I'm doing this. So yeah. I really appreciated you coming in today. Thanks. So thanks, thanks Holly. for having me. So for those of you listening, if you want to learn more about Holly and her work, you can take a look at her website, as she mentioned before, or take a look at my website. We'll have all the information that we discussed today up, www.rissocounseling.com. And let's hear more about what you want to hear on podcasts coming up. Anything that's in the mental or sexual health field, I definitely want to get discussed. So come on, guys. Let's do it. Want more? Visit www.rissocounseling.com for more ideas on mental health, sex, and relationships.